Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. My regular co-host, Susan Fox, is off on a run to pick up some friends for New Year's Eve. We're recording this on New Year's Eve. And our guest today is the traveling nerd, a.k.a. Lance Paul. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, so um, tell us about the traveling nerd and what that is and, and uh, where, we can, where we can find it, first of all, so of the course. listeners can find it. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm on all social medias, of course. I'm on, uh, mm-hmm. on Facebook under Traveling Nerd or The Traveling Nerd. Under Instagram, under the underscore traveling nerd. And then if you follow me on Twitter, I'm under Lance underscore Paul. And, you know, the, the traveling nerd kind of came about from the fact that, I, one, I'm a giant nerd. And I travel all over the world just through different projects I'm working on, through production or speaking events. Or also just going to cons and going to different events that are, to me, nerd related. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really saw a lack in the market of, you know, what else is out there? Obviously, we know what the U.S. nerdum looks like. We know what, like, if you're in London, we kind of know what that looks like. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's all parts of the world that you go to, and there's nerds everywhere. There, I mean, the Star Wars is global. I mean, for example, Star Wars is global. There's Marvel is global. Like, how do they perceive this? How do, What do they do with it? What have, what has comics, like, really done in their culture? For instance, I one one thing that really became, became the traveling nerd is I was in London, and I went to, they had a whole museum on comic art, just London-based comic art, UK comic artists and the, through the centuries of comic art. And comic, comic art over here in the States has always been like superheroes with capes, and that's what we know, or we know Captain America. Mm-hmm. But over there, I mean, comic art has been all the way from the Penny Dreadfuls back in, you know, oh, yes. the 1800s. So, and also, too, a lot of their... You know, their, their political stance and political points were actually influenced by comic books because, you know, a lot, like over here we have free speech. Over there, to extent, it's a little bit different to where to really get like, you know, your opinions on, um, uh, gay rights or women's voting or women's rights out in the public, they would put them into like little penny dreadfuls or into mm-hmm. comic formats that were then like sold on black market. So it really got, you know, it, it got people's opinions out there where they, you know, any other time they probably would have been, you know, uh, criminalized or anything like that. And this, and they use comics to really get mm-hmm. that vibe out. And that, to me, that really struck him like, well, that, that's pretty cool. So comic so, books is parable. Oh, yeah, 100%. So uh-huh. to me, that I mean, that just, that, that really opened my eyes to like what else is out there all around the world where, you know, I'd love to show people that follow me on my social media or anything like that, you know, what's out there. And then from that, that kind of turned into, because I, I am in 
uh, production. I own a production company and I've been optioning TV shows and I kind of came up with the idea of a show called The Traveling Nerd where, you know, it kind of like a uh, wild on E mixed with um, uh, any of the, mm-hmm. the nation kind of shows that have been out in the past like 10 years where, you know, instead of traveling the world for, you know, crazy beaches or something like that, you're traveling to the cons, you're traveling to the um, the cosplay events, you're traveling to like even uh, Pinehurst Studios to uh, Pinewood Studios to see, you know, the, mm-hmm. the production of like Star Wars or get behind the scenes. Like it was just a cool concept I had. And it kind of just, it kind of went from there and it's just been, it's been blowing up on the social media things and, you know, I'm getting a lot of followers and it's been a lot of fun. Just even, and also too, just, you know, I also, I'm part owner of a, a nerd site called God Hates Geeks. Uh-huh. And I've heard from of that, that too, I've heard of you know, I, I, um, go ahead. I've heard of God Hates Geeks. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, me, uh, it's uh, Travis, Travis Moody and I's uh, little pet project. Uh-huh. So we've been playing with that for a couple years and it's just like, um, the idea behind it is kind of like, you know, the, the anti-nerdist, like the, you know, mm-hmm. you got the flip of the coin, you got nerdist and then you got God hates geeks. Well, and that's, you know, that's kind of, uh, where Krypton radio is too, you know, because, uh, uh, you can't back up without tripping over something the nerdist has published. And, oh God, uh, yeah. you know, if people are starting to wonder, is nerdist the only thing there is? <laughs> I mean, what's going on? <laughs> So, you know, it's great to be able to offer people alternatives to, to the singular commercial viewpoint of the nerdist. Definitely. And that's one thing, especially a God, God Hates Geese, we try to, we try to play off of. Because, for instance, just recently there was an article posted by LA Times. LA Times is huge. I live here in Los Angeles and they're, mm-hmm. they're, they have a pretty big, um, nerd following under the hero complex. Yeah. One of the writers had written this whole article bashing Star Wars, how it's, it was an awful film and going, looking from like a hipster point of view. And the problem is, it, LA Times is such a big paper. I mean, it, 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 it totally skews the market of like, who's going to watch these movies? Like, they're looking at, they're looking at it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And same thing could be said for video games too. I mean, there's a ton of magazines we're not even going to mention that review video games that are paid by the video game companies to review them highly or higher and sure. give them mm-hmm. higher scores. And the thing that guys, geeks and probably Krypton Radio, you do the same thing. We give you our opinion. We, we've played the game. We've, we've read the book. We've watched the sci-fi movie. And we tell you what we think and from a nurse perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and sometimes that, you know, what we have to say isn't necessarily what they want to hear. Oh, 100%. But, I agree. But, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say everyone's going to yeah. agree with me. And I hope they don't because I'd rather have. Oh, yeah. You know, I'd rather have an I'd rather put out an honest opinion that people respect than uh, than just be pushing whatever, you know, whatever it is the publisher wants to wants us to say. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. And I, it's also fun to get different perspectives. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to tell you my perspective and you're going to tell me yours and I'm going to then go back and forth and I'll kind of see where you're thinking. And sometimes I'll agree. Sometimes I won't. Or sometimes I'll be like, man, you know, we're both right. Just in our own perspective. Well, and part and parcel of that is, uh, uh, you know, you, you want to do right by people, but at, at the same time, you don't want to embarrass them either. And so you're, you're kind of selective about which things you, you put up, uh, you know, hold up for other people to see and, and what things you review because you don't want to be in the, the business of bashing other people's dreams. Uh, uh, so at the same time, uh, that plays into how much, you know, what you have to say about these kinds of projects and, and, uh, which ones get your attention. Yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. I mean, we try and do, we try and go pretty broad with everything, obviously, especially with the traveling nerd and God hates geeks. And mm-hmm. we cover all the, the main things coming out, especially from nerdum or sci-fi or anything like that. But also too, we, we try and hit the indie realm too. I mean, I, I'm an indie producer. I make indie films. I like mm-hmm. having that, the idea of giving indie 
projects of voice too. You could be indie comics, it could be indie books, or it could be indie movies. Like, you know, giving them some PR, giving them a little press, it helps. I mean, I know this from my my oh, perspective. Oh, it sure does. Oh, so, course. so you are involved in a great deal of of uh, science fiction and fantasy and horror production. Uh, what is it that makes one of these things finance worthy? You know, honestly, uh, when I first got into producing, I, uh, someone always told me, it was a mentor I had always told me that, you know, there's, for making films, especially indie level, your, your films are going to, they're, depending on what kind of genre you go with is how productive and how well it can do without having names or not having a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Horror films, generally speaking, are one of the top producing films or like genres out there for making money because not to be, um, not to be rude or anything, but like you can have, Tits and ass. You can have some blood, and uh-huh. you have so much of a somewhat of a synopsis on the back. People are going to buy it. They're going to rent it. They're going to go to Netflix because they like the cover, mm-hmm. and that's generally what they think of when they get out of a horror. So you're not going to you're not going to have to pay for like super big a listers. You're not going to have to have humongous mm-hmm. special effects. You have you know real special effects, or you can have you know a yeah, lot practi- of blood. practical effects. You know, practical the stuff effects. that you can do on the stage with uh, push wires and latex and and uh, of course silicone. You know, silicone molded uh, uh, appliances and things like that. Yeah, I mean, for instance, uh-huh. uh, the first film I um, I helped produce with a producing partner of mine at the time was uh, Chase was with Chase Smith and Spirit World Films. We produced a film called uh, Realm of Souls. Our mm-hmm. budget was like five thousand dollars. We produced this film. We made it. I actually started in it too because I'm an actor as well. And we ended up selling it to China first. China then so, um, was showcasing it over there. It's on Netflix now. Like it's and it's when. Huh. Globally, it's went into it's called Realm of Souls, and uh-huh. we shot it for five thousand bucks. And we used practical effects. Now, how long used, ago was this? How long ago was this for a five thousand dollar budget? About four years ago. Oh my god! You yeah, can't, you can't, you, can you can't blow your nose in five thousand bucks on oh, a film. I mean, we uh, the, the films that Spirit Spirit World Films and I did. We, I mean, we did a lot where you know we had fifteen thousand dollar budgets. Uh, the uh-huh. one that was just over in Japan that starred uh, Charlotte Fox. Which Charlotte Fox went on. She's an actress from mm-hmm. Ohio that went on to star in the number one TV show in Japan, and she she was the first American actress ever to star in a Japanese TV show. Wow. Japan ended up buying the the film, and it 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 showed over there. I mean, we shot that for like fifteen thousand bucks. That's, and that's, a, that's amazing. As well. So this is where your profit margins are coming from. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, in my degrees, I actually I have a background in finance. I mm-hmm. so before I got into entertainment and art and all that stuff. I, I was, a, I was a, a banker, like I have a degree in finance. Mm-hmm. And, um, to me, I, I mean, I, and I helped invest in a lot of different projects w- for my clients. And just from seeing that and seeing how films can be, if you have a film and it's a good, a good budget, you're not going, you know, we're not trying to shoot like a million dollar film here. We're shooting a good budget. We're under budget and we're, you know, we're hitting all the checks that we need to hit. You can potentially have a great investment. I mean, you can make your money back. I mean, all the films that spirit world, spirit world films. And I did, I mean, we, all of them are on scale to make an ROI back mm-hmm. as soon as they hit the market. So, I mean, because our budgets are so low, I mean, that helps. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, when I was working on this stuff, uh, back in the 80s, uh, uh, it seemed to me like half of Hollywood was busy making these tiny budget films, uh, a lot of horror movies, a lot of, uh, a lot of just genuine trash out there. You know, but back in the day, uh, you would make something like that and it would go to, it would go to the drive-in circuit, and there aren't drive-ins anymore. But back then, uh, you, they would just send anything to the the deep south, you know, Georgia and 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 uh, uh, Florida and and uh, 
you know, Louisiana and in places like that. And they would, the, the theaters would just buy anything, just anything to put up. Cause the people weren't there to watch the movies apparently. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, and you, you could make your money back like, just on, just on distributing in the Southern belt. Yeah. Know, I mean, the drive-in belt. The, the old drive, drive-ins of like, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, even the late 90s, cause I, I did get to see some drive-ins. They've kind of turned into the Netflix, the Hulus, the Amazons. I mean, cause I've had a couple projects uh-huh. that we've pitched over to Amazon Netflix. And I've, ha- I've had people there tell me that, you know, if they, if somebody likes the project there, they will green light a lot of projects. Cause to them, it's so much, I mean, even it could be a couple million dollar budget. It's still so much cheaper for them to do that kind of project. Mm-hmm. Get it on, they have, I mean, they have the viewership. Get it on Netflix. They get the views or people pop in on it. They want to see it. They make their money back. I mean, they don't, the, the margin is nowhere near what it is like for like a, a, a production company to make a film and then try and sell it to a third party distribu- distributor. I mean, Netflix is a distributor. So they've, mm-hmm. it's like a distributor making their own movies and then already having a built in clientele. And that's, and they've kind of, that's kind of turned into like the drive-ins or what the drive-ins used to be, especially because if you think yeah. about it, like if you've probably yeah, heard it, that's true. uh, Netflix and chill, uh-huh. the same concept, same idea. You may not be watching what's on that Netflix or Hulu. <laughs> uh-huh. Neither were yeah. you really watching something at the drive-ins. Yeah, that's really true. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating how, uh, how this new distribution medium has really transformed the industry and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's like water seeking its own level. Um, you know, we have, uh, we have a new situation where we can, where we can produce very low budget stuff and, and get it done. So Netflix is actually giving you negative pickup on these or how does that work? Say that again. Uh, Netflix actually gives you ne- a negative pickup deal on these, or how does it work? So ne- what will happen is um, it all depends which way you go. Like, for instance, the, the films that we did through Spirit World, we would sell them through a Brain Damage Films, which is a distribution mm-hmm. company, because these are obviously low-budget horror films, right. and Brain Damage does, does a lot with that. Brain Damage then would then sell it over to Netflix. Mm-hmm. So in that instance, you still have that third party or that third the third party in the middle. But for instance, for a couple, I have a couple reality shows that I'm producing that we're pitching networks, Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. With that... You're cutting out that middleman. So literally, I put together a project. I then or scripts too, like same thing. And I know Amazon has it right now, where if you go, you can sign up with Amazon, send them over your script. If they like it, they'll pick it up and they'll bring you along and make your project. So I mean, that's same idea. Is this is just a little bit different though? But like, I'll I'll you know I'll make a sizzle, I'll pitch it over to Amazon or Netflix, and then if they mm-hmm. like it, they pick it up. You've cut out that middleman, mm-hmm. and your film is getting done through Amazon, and they have their built-in distribution. And then also too, for instance, like if you look at like House of Cards, House of Cards started at Netflix. You have your built-in people that are going to watch it, and then they then people that don't have Netflix, they still release it on, on a, a DVD or a Blu-ray, and you'll see it sitting in Target or Walmart, and people are still going to buy it that way too. So it, it's totally changed the market on how you you sell a film or or a TV show. Well, it's great to be you know sitting on a distribution system like that because uh, you get to participate in in guiding the uh, the flow of creativity. On the projects that make up popular culture, you know, and that's yeah, yeah, in a way, that's 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 one of the fun things about uh, uh, running the world's most popular geek radio station is uh, I get to help people like that. Uh, you know, we're uh, it's on a much smaller scale, but in effect, we've created our own distribution system. That's and, awesome, and we can we can green light uh, we can green light our own shows for starters. And uh, we can provide a venue for others to to do their the same thing with their own radio shows, you know. And it's 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 radio, not video, but the principle is the same. 
Well, if you think about it, I mean, I, I would compare this to how we have digital cameras now. So digital cameras have made filming so much cheaper. Oh, yes. You know. Oh, God, yes. And But that's the same thing with, like, Krypton Radio. Krypton Radio would not be here, let's say, 30 years ago if not for the, the digital technology we have now. I mean, for instance, you know, if you have an issue or you're probably doing everything through your computer. I mean, obviously, you have mm-hmm. some other things attached to it. But, like, for me, I'm on my laptop right now. Before, to do like a true radio station, you would have had to go into a whole whole radio booth. I mean, think how much it's made things cheaper and smaller to still do such big things. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got about 600 bucks worth of audio gear plugged into a notebook here on my end. So, which, I mean, still $600. (laughs) I mean, a digital camera is still $2,500. Yeah, but you you spend it once. You spend it once and then you can use it it forever. And you're not buying film, you're not buying uh, tape, you're not doing any of that stuff. It's truly changed how we how we make media now. I worked at Rhythm and Hughes for about, well, almost 10 years working on uh, feature animation. I was in their education department. I was uh, teaching uh, technical directors and animators how to, how to use the production pipeline, and in some cases teaching the art of animation itself. And one thing... Uh, one particular thing stuck in my mind uh, uh, as a takeaway from all of this, and that was that um, even starting in 2003, most of the people who I was talking to who were in active production on major features had never held a piece of film negative in their hands, had never seen one, had never held a film camera, that's it, crazy. Yeah, and in some cases, the people who were doing lighting uh, on these digital animation scenes had never actually gone to a studio with a light kit and sent set up a three point uh, three point light setup with real lights. Never actually handled real lights. Which is really funny if you think about it, because especially in the indie realm, especially shooting a film for five K or fifteen K or whatever. You, as a producer, you do everything. I mean, you you wear so many hats. Even like the director wears so many hats. Like you're setting up sound, you're setting up, you're doing lighting. You're you may hold a camera, you may do anything because to shoot a film so cheap, you you may lose help. You, you know, you're mm-hmm. not paying these people a lot of, a lot of money, but you're trying to make a good product. So I feel like growing up in the the indie realm, it makes you a better filmmaker or at least a better producer because you have respect for every single person that is in in a position that you're going to fill or you're going to hire because you've done it yourself. You've, you've done that lighting. You've, you've held that camera. You know how tedious it can be, but you respect that person. So I I feel like you, you become a better filmmaker because of it. Well, that's, that's really true. And I think uh, an important part of that is, uh, if you're going to take on a role like this, it pretty much implies that you are a polymath, uh, a multidisciplinary, somebody who can pick up anything and do a passable job at it. You might, might not be the best at that particular job, but you can get it done. And uh, as an independent uh, producer and director, you find yourself doing this a lot. And this is, uh, this is the same principle that allows Krypton Radio to keep going as well. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that, uh, that I can handle most of the things that I, that, uh, happen to get thrown at me, we wouldn't have a radio station. Yeah, we're similar. It's a, a jack of all trades, master of none. Well, yeah, of course, if you stick with it enough to, uh, for enough time, eventually you're a jack of all trades, master of some. And <laughs> Very that's, true. That's where you start really picking up your power and, and, and getting, getting ahead of steam. So what projects have you got uh, in production right now, speaking of heads of steam? What are you okay. working on? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so through Spirit World Films, that's a production company in Georgia, we have a couple projects coming out still. We are just finished. We just finished editing and uh, post production on a film called uh, Creature Feature. Mm-hmm. Really cool. It's um, it's an uh, kind of an homage to the uh, the creep shows of like the '80s and even the Trick or Treat of uh-huh. the early millennium. So it's a bunch, couple different stories all piled into one. And the cool thing about it, similar to Creepshow, it actually goes from live action to like a comic art format and then goes back to live action as you mm-hmm. go between different stories. So this is pure pulp. I mean, this is definitely pulp. It's cool. It's fun. I mean, there's a werewolf story. There's a, um, there's a vampire story. Uh-huh. There's a witch's story. There's a, I mean, it's, it's, it's just so cool because we have so many different like little genre horror characters in there. So that's going to be a lot of fun. That should be hitting distribution. Um, actually, I've actually hitting distribution in the next like two, three months. That'll, that'll be going through Brain Damage Films, and then should be hitting Netflix probably by sometime in 16. Then we have a film called uh, Dark Road 79 that we finished filming that a couple months ago. That's going into post now. That uh, uh, That's going to be – it's kind of like set in 1970s. It's a, you know old uh, rock band that's seen better days mm-hmm. and how they've kind of um, – you know they you come to find out they, they sold their soul to the devil to uh, for fame and fortune. And, you know, that contract's up. Oh, oh boy. Yeah, that sounds like fun. I mean, this is the, just the kind of stuff that you go out, you, uh, you're flipping through and you go, Oh God, this looks greasy. I've got to see this. <laughs> oh, yeah. The cool you thing know? about that, that's, that stars Bill Mosley, or Bill Mosley was one of our actors. We had a, a star in it. And uh-huh. Bill is, I mean, if you've ever had Bill on here, if you've ever seen anything Bill does, Bill did uh, Devil's Rejects. He's a phenomenal actor. He's classically trained and he's, he's a phenomenal on set. So we actually had him in that project. So that's going to be coming out. So we should actually be releasing sometime next year. And then um, right now, on my because I have another production company here in L.A. called Ginger Night Entertainment, mm-hmm. we're actually on a production of a horror film called Splatterpunk by the writer David Ayers. David Ayers wrote The Crow, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh-huh. So phenomenal writer. And we started. Splatterpunk. What a great Punk. title! What a great. I mean, this is this that. is Grindhouse. I, yeah, I no, this is 100 percent Grindhouse. This is a slasher film at the best. It's similar idea to uh, what we did with Creature Feature and Creep Show. There's a couple different stories going on at the same time. I like that. I like that genre because you can tell uh-huh. like five movies in one, but you still have a finish at, at the end. But uh, the cool thing about that is, you know, there's a kind of a cool alien story. There's the slasher story. There's the mm-hmm. demented like um, circus reject story. So it's it's that's a cool, fun one. We we uh, we started production on that last month. We filmed um, some of it there, and then we're gonna pick up production again here this month. Uh, to finish that up sometime in March. So then our goal is to get that all edited and out for distribution probably sometime in October, November of 16. So those are the films we have in production. And then on I got a couple TV shows I'm working on too. So we've been, in, um, we've been in production on um, our pre-production on a couple different reality shows. I have option. One's a uh, tattoo medium where she's like a medium and she's a tattoo artist. So that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple cooking shows, a, um, a travel show where this person goes, he's a, he's a National Geographic tour guide. He, you know, he goes to these extreme locations and shows you how to survive and then hits your extraction point and it's called extraction. And then we have, um, uh, obviously the traveling nerd is a, a project that's very, very dear to my heart that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And then I was just in a, um, a pilot called uh, geek Haven. That's going to be pitched over to Netflix huh. and Amazon next month. That's cool. It's kind of a mixture of, uh, Big Bang Theory meets How I Met Your Mother. So we shot that over in Houston, and <laughs> okay. it's, it's a lot of fun, man. It's a really fun little project. Well, cool. Wow. So how uh, when you start one of your film projects, how how long is it from conception to release? 
It all What's depends your really production on, on cycle? the project. Because, I mean, the, conceptually wise, I mean, you can be in conception for a month or two or a month mm-hmm. as you're designing everything, getting everything together or longer. Um, but then you obviously go into the casting stage and the film funding stage. So if you count all of that from the producer aspect of raising the funds to to the first day of production, you could be a good six months to seven, eight months mm-hmm. of getting it ready to go. Um, then once you film, generally speaking, we usually film for like 22 to 30 days, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people don't realize that... Uh uh, you know, when you shoot a film, the, the actual shooting is probably the smallest part of the job. Oh, it really is. And then also, then you go into post-production. So editing uh-huh. and sound and all that stuff. Then you're looking at probably a minimum of three months. It could go to six months depending on, you know, how long it takes and how tedious it is. Well, and, you know, how, how detailed you want your soundtrack and how, how, uh, how much time your composer needs, you mm-hmm. know, and, and all of that stuff. All of that stuff that gets done after the shooting is over with. And then, uh, uh, oh gosh, so many questions. <laughs> so yeah, what- <laughs> it's funny because you you had asked about the film fin- funding aspect uh-huh. or financing, like how they can make their money back. Um, the funny thing with I, I learned with film is film investment takes longer. So like you may put your money in, let's say to, today, but your film won't be starting to make money for at least a year. So you got to mm-hmm. look into that aspect of where like yeah, you can throw money into stocks or something, you can make money back really quick. So film is more of a longer, longer investment, but it can be more lucrative. Well, yeah. it's, and it's also a crapshoot for the investors, you know. I mean, it's. I find every investment's a crapshoot for investors. I mean, there's no sound investment that 100% can say, I can look you in the eye and say, there's, you're not, you're going to make all your money back. I mean, nothing's like, that's why it's called an investment. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you have to tell them up front, you know, this is an investment. You have the potential of losing every penny. Of course. You tell yeah, them and that. And you have to, by, them... by law, you have to tell them that. Well, you, so. <laughs> Morally, you should because yeah. you got to be, be honest with them. You got to listen. Anything could happen. You could lose all your money, or the film could make money, or it could break even, or you know, if yeah. it gets distributed, it's sold for seven years. So, you, I mean, it's kind of hard to predict how much money an investor would make, but you kind of mm-hmm. have to give them all the the parameters of like you know the best case and the worst case. So yeah, well, worst about. case scenario is they lose all their money and it's a, it's an enormous tax write off. And it's enormous, and they have a great movie poster to hang on their wall, maybe, and maybe a red carpet. Worst yeah, case uh-huh. you know, and it's <laughs> uh, at, at very least, it's it's good for a few Hollywood parties to get them in close to other people who have more power than they do. Of course, and you know, and that's that's really about half of what they're they're there for. I agree. It's funny. Like I find a lot of the people that invest in films are ones that this is obviously not their whole only investment. They are mm-hmm. ones that have already invested in other things. They've made their money and they kind of want to do something fun and different with an investment where it's not the same old thing. They're giving it to a stockbroker and maybe they're going to make some money with it. At least with this, there's some perks. You know, they may go to the, the Hollywood party. They may go to the red carpet. They can, they have actually something that's in the Library of Congress that they can say, Hey, I, I helped produce this. Yeah, I didn't make any uh-huh. money, but Hey, I got a film that I produced. I mean, a lot of them just do it for the recognition and just the fun of, you know, to them, it's a gamble. It's it's a fun gamble that could pay off. Yeah, it's it's kind of exciting. I mean, this is a, a brave new world of new media. We have new distribution systems. Uh, new media forms are evolving. Uh, uh, I could not have predicted 10 years ago that YouTube would be uh, not only a distribution platform, but uh, uh, the, the focusing lens of a, an entirely new kind of visual medium. You know, I, uh, they are, these YouTubers are producing 10 minute shows, you know, and, and, uh, doing this like four times a month and, and making millions of dollars a year. <laughs> I know it's, it's amazing. A- and the thing that blows my mind, 
YouTube, I mean, YouTube's now been around for a couple of years to where like, cause I know, I know a couple of the YouTube stars that make good money doing well, it. Maybe a couple. Yeah. A couple, you know, maybe. <laughs> the thing that really blows my mind though are the vines. These, these, these kids, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're 18, seconds. 22, six seconds. They're making six a movie seconds. and they're making millions of dollars off this. I'm like, how are you doing that? That's crazy. <clears throat> that's, yeah, that's, that one just blows me away. I mean, what the, what the heck? I mean, what, what happened? Did we blink? And miss it? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, there's, there are so many, there's so many new opportunities in media and it's, uh, we are inventing new stuff as we go. I mean, one of the new things that's coming out, uh, if you have a Verizon phone and I think they're still giving them away, <laughs> you can go to the, the, no, not the phone. I mean, well, they're giving some of them away, but, uh, you can go to the Verizon, uh, uh, branded outlet stores. Uh, and you can pick up a Google Cardboard from them for free. And uh, the content that's available for this thing, it's a 3D, it's like an Oculus Rift, except you basically you stick your phone in this thing, uh, and it's got a couple of lenses, and it's like a poor man's Oculus. Oh, I did see that. I saw one of those at Best Buy. Yeah, and uh, they're very inexpensive. Uh, there are places online where you can sign up to have one sent to you for free. And there are a number of different 360 degree cameras that are out there. Kodak makes one, uh, which surprisingly costs about 250 bucks. That's not bad. That's cheap. That's, that's the barrier to entry to make 3D 360 degree movies. That's Holy, crazy. I, yeah, that's and it's spawning an entirely new genre of filmmaking. You can't uh you can't edit this stuff the way you edit a normal film because the the traditional visual cues of uh of camera angle and focus and and framing don't apply. You d you still have lighting and you can still set the mood by uh, scenic design and editing and dialogue. Uh, and, uh, I think I mentioned the lighting, you know, and the, the pacing of the editing, but that's it. All the traditional visual, uh, visual cues that you get, the, the tools that you would normally have are gone. So people are busy trying to reinvent the visual narrative using this new, this new tool. And it's, it's like, it's like being there. I mean, if it's shot well enough, it's like, it's so disorienting when you take off that headset that you go, oh yeah, I'm standing here in my living room. I'm not really there. It's almost like the, um, remember when the POV video games first started coming out back in like the late nineties uh -huh. where like you, I mean, remember Halo when you were looking all around and you're seeing everything around you, like it's, it's yeah, amazing. How that much was magical, change. you know, and, it's, but this is in 3d. That's phenomenal. That's yeah. So this cool. is, yeah, this is, this is a uh, stereoscopic vision. And, uh, you know, it's, it's on a cell phone, so it's not going to be very high resolution. The highest, my cell phone, for example, is 4K. Uh, but most people's cell phones are not that good. And so the, the image is kind of grainy and it's kind of jerky, but it still works. And it still works well enough to be immersive and get you seasick. Well, I mean, I think too, I mean, remember the, the uh, remember like the 3D, the video game 3D, the, those, not the Oculus Rift, but the original. Remember, like, Nintendo had a 3D, like, 
uh, they had a Game Boy Game Boy VR. Oh yeah, it was like some Nintendo VR or something like that. Yeah, Nintendo VR, and it was it everything was red. Everything was red. Awful, awful graphics. Oh, and horrible, horrible. You can find some of these things on YouTube. Yeah, but it did. Yeah, and it was a, a colossal commercial failure. I think they made like six games. Mm-hmm, definitely. And, I mean, I, I I used to see it at the. I remember when I was little. I used to see it at the mall where they're just they're like begging you, please come try this. But it's so funny. Like it shows just it just shows where things going. Like I've I've worked for Oculus Rift a couple times at CES where, and I remember I was doing a um, a show covering everything at CES for God Hates Geeks. This was mm-hmm. maybe three years ago, and this is when Oculus Rift was really hitting the market. And like you could you had the glove and you had the Oculus Rift on. You could that was like the first time you could actually get in there and play with it. And it was just it's so crazy, it's so cool what what they're doing right now. Well, in the new Oculus Rift, let's see. There's the the first generation of the Oculus Rift. I think uh, uh, I think it was like fifteen hundred dollars or something like that. Huge barrier to entry. The second version of it, once they got the engineering refined, I think it came down to six hundred. And now, if you have a Samsung phone, uh, you can plug your phone into a hundred dollar attachment that's uh, engineered by the Oculus Rift people and have a poor man's Oculus, Oculus Rift for about $100 if you already have one of those Samsung phones. So the barriers to entry are coming down. The quality of the head tracking is coming up, so you have a little bit less of that seasickness going on. Uh, and new narratives, new ways of, of uh, uh, presenting New fiction and new stories are being invented on the fly as we go. And it's, uh, it's a great time to be alive. I mean, there, there, and there's, I was just reading about a new, uh, uh, a Japanese research firm, and I'm going to be publishing the article on this in the next couple of days on the Krypton Radio website, where they have worked out how to get haptic feedback into holograms so that you can touch them. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, and I was watching a video and uh, uh, essentially they have a 3D holographic projection uh, between two people who are separated some distance. And one of them has a little uh, inflatable beach ball in their hand. And the other one sticks his hand in the box from far away and swats his hand and is able to swat the beach ball out of the hand of the person on the other side using the haptic feedback. Oh, that's, that's, you can actually transmit the sense of touch and transmit the the physical effects of that from one location to another over this 3D interface. Here's a question for you, and yeah. I've, I've asked this to some of my other nerd friends too. Okay, it's, okay. So the things that we we grew up like seeing as reality in like the Star Treks of like you know when that first that sh- the show first came out, you know, with the mm-hmm. the taser beams and the all the, the even the, yeah, cell, the, fa- the, the similar cell phone re- uh, reception things they had. Right. I mean, to the Star Wars with the holograms and everything. Do you think that modern technology we have now is influenced by that? Like we're <laughs> trying to create what we saw in these these, these movies growing up. Oh, you have asked such a loaded question. I know. It's a good I, one, I abs- yes. I have published several articles on Krypton Radio to this exact question. And yes, I absolutely think so. I mean, it's like Star Trek has been used as the design template for the future by, uh, by engineers watching Star Trek and, and growing up and wanting to be Scotty, you know, or inspired to become engineers because they saw Mr. Scott doing it. And, uh, uh, I mean, the very first flip phone was called a StarTac. Mm, Seri- seriously. And 
you know, I mean, that should tell you something right there. And then, and then the, uh, uh, the tablets, the iPad is the same thing as the Star Trek pad from Star Trek The Next Generation, except Star Trek had it first. Hundred percent. Now the the ex the, the second question to go along with that now is so yeah. obviously the people that originally created these concepts for the Star Trek, the Star Wars, and all that stuff, they obviously kind of they were maybe influenced by other ideas and stuff, but they kind of created these new concepts to create this new technology in these sci-fi movies back in the seventies, mm-hmm. eighties. Yeah, like, so, like Lieutenant Uhura's Bluetooth headset. Just like that. Yeah. So the question is, are we are we still creating new? concepts that have never been thought of before or are we taking old concepts and just trying to create them and make them real so i well obviously the answer is going to be a little of both but star trek provided such a strong organized template for the future and and uh, the technology that we could make for our own future that people just went oh yeah this is all laid out for me this all makes sense let's go do this you know, and so we have, uh, we have Japanese researchers trying very, very hard to make touchable holograms because obvious, the, the obvious goal is that we want holodecks and that as oh. soon as they solve this problem, we're going to have interactive, fully realized 3D, uh, environments for entertainment purposes with which we can, uh, with, with which we can interact. And uh, and holodecks are going to be probably the next big thing as soon as they get these other problems figured out. They can already use laser beams to excite or ionize gas in three-dimensional space and produce uh, three-dimensional uh, images without a, a projection screen. So the future of the book Ready Player One is only a couple years away then? Uh, uh, yeah, more or less. I mean, we're, we're obviously still working on, you know, this is still, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the very oldest television sets where the screen was like two inches across and it basically it was a little shadow show. Mm-hmm. I have, yes. And that's about, that's about where we are with, I think, uh, our 3D projection technology. It's the same sort of thing. But kind of like all technology, I mean, once the idea is out there and the, the first concept has been there, I mean, technology, like everything, just kind of like overlaps itself before, and then it, before you know it, it's, it's jumping in leaps and bounds. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe 20 years, we'll have that technology there. There was a story in the 1940s, a science fiction story, that was going to be published in analog. I don't remember the, either, the, unfortunately, the author's name or the title of the story. Uh, and uh, I'm sure a Krypton Radio listener will be able to to uh, comment on this show later after it's broadcast and fill me in with the information. But uh, it had to be pulled because it too accurately predicted the technology and the development of a nuclear weapon. And we were about to drop one on Hiroshima. Oh, my God. And the U.S. government found out that this story was going to be published, and they said, uh, no. (laughs) And predictive fiction has had that strong a role in in where we are going and what are I mean they're they're basically the headlights on the car as as we figure out how all of this stuff works and moreover science fiction in turn uh, seems to help define what we expect to see when we get there uh, there's some debate on 
Uh, I mean, there's, there's a great deal of research in the area of quantum mechanics where reality, it's, they've worked out the fact that reality doesn't really form a concrete uh, state until we observe it. So until, so it's until we observe it, it's to, not um, really there. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. I said it's very similar to uh, Ernest Klein, the guy that, that wrote the, um, that wrote Ready Player One. He also wrote mm-hmm. Armada recently this year. And it's the same, same concept to where they, in the book, they created this whole, like the, the whole gaming revolution with like video games and, and droids and drones and all that stuff was all created getting people ready for them actually having aliens or something like that. But it's it's kind of similar idea to where like we, I mean the creation of science fiction kind of gets us ready for this modern technology that we're going to have someday. Yeah, very much. Well, and it also shapes our expectations. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we expect things to behave a certain way, uh, and so we form our observations. We 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 build our tests so that we can detect whether or not they behave in that certain way. And sure enough, they do. And a lot of the time anyway. And I have to wonder, is it happening because it's true or is it happening because we expect it to be true? Because That's a good of, point. Because of the way quantum mechanics works. It's not real until we observe it. Mm-hmm. So science fiction has such a dramatic and po- powerful role in the way, uh, in the way our own future develops. And I think, you know, getting back to your original question, is Star Trek shaping this? I think absolutely yes, because it's the strongest single pattern we have to build our ideas of what the future should be. If only Star Wars could have shaped it more, we would have lightsabers by now. No, yeah. Well, have you seen the guys who are building their own? Yeah, I did see that. That's pretty interesting how they're doing that. It's like one guy, uh, one, one guy, um, who's famous for just putting high energy lasers in everything. He put one in a laser, uh, 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 lightsaber handle. But it's really just a laser torch. Yeah. And then the other guy who created, um, and I think we have an article on the front page of Krypton Radio about this one. He put, uh, he basically, he put a mini flamethrower in his. And, uh, so it's the, the blade has a, a finite length. Interesting. So it's the first working lightsaber model that actually has a finite length. And the blade, when he turns it on, it looks amazingly like the one Kylo Ren had in Star Wars. It has oh, the uh, same ripply, violent, erratic trait to it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wish, you know, I, I think, I think Star Wars has had its role as well. It's, uh, you know, the robots, the Japanese love this stuff. Oh, of and course. Making, I mean, and all these Star Wars, the Star Wars, the Star Treks, I mean, they can all go back to H.G. Wells. I mean, everything oh, yeah. plays off of everything. Mm-hmm. So where do you see yourself? Uh, do you have a particular love of this genre yourself? Uh, uh, I mean, obviously it is the, it is the, the, uh, the lighter fluid for, you know, grindhouse films. Oh, of course. You know, it's honestly, I, I am, so when I was growing up, my dad and I, we, we didn't have a lot in common, but we had movies in common and we always watched horror movies and sci-fi movies. And action films too. I mean, this is what we did. This is how we bonded. So, I mean, even from a young age, I grew up with this stuff. This has kind of like been in my DNA and what I enjoy and like how I, I remember my father. So I'm very influenced and, and I see myself continuing to make, you know, film, horror films or sci-fi films or action films. Like I, I love the genre so much because there's so much you can do with it. And you, I mean, similar to like what Star Wars and Star Trek playing off of H.G. Wells, the concept and ideas we're going to have, hopefully, if Hollywood quits, quits making remakes 
in the future is going to be amazing. I mean, who knows? The sky's the limit for what we can create. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty awesome future. I mean, I can hardly wait. And thank you so much for helping build it. I mean, <laughs> you're as I active. You're as, I appreciate that. You're as active a part of creating the future that that uh, we all want to see as as anybody else, and maybe more so because you've got your you've got your hands on the tiller. You're actually driving the boat instead of just riding it, and uh, that is a very that's a very magical thing. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking to Lance Paul. Uh, he is a writer, he's a producer, he's a director and an actor in science fiction and horror movies, and uh, he is the also known as the Traveling Nerd. Uh, tell us again where we can find you on social media. I definitely. I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter under Lance underscore Paul. I'm on Instagram, which is a big, big love of mine. I'm on under the, uh, I'm on the underscore traveling nerd. You can find me on Instagram. And mm-hmm. then on Facebook, I'm under traveling nerd. Just, uh, you can look up traveling nerd on Facebook and you'll pop, and I'll pop up. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the event horizon. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this evening for episode 122 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for January 2nd, 2015. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. Our usual co-host, Susan L. Fox, had the day off, but she will be back with us next week. Our guest this evening has been Lance Paul, the traveling nerd. He is a writer, actor, and producer of Grindhouse Films in Hollywood, California, through his production company, Spirit World Films. This episode will air again on January 3rd, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at additional times throughout the coming week. See our website for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads on KryptonRadio.com and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at KatCarter at KryptonRadio.com. If you would like to be a patron of the Geeky Arts, you can do so for as little as $1 a month, though larger amounts are encouraged. Please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio to join the Krypton Radio family of patrons. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2016 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.